pieces, and this would be a traditional style shirt that they would wear when they were speaking. So I thought, well, if we're going to talk about preaching, I should at least look the part. Do I look the part? We'll find out, I guess, when we study God's Word together in just a little bit here. Uh, we've been going through a series called Reflection on Exile, and we've been doing some different kind of um, approach to what we're studying. It's a little different than what we've been doing, and we talked first about reimagining the church. So reimagining the gathering of God's people. And as we have been studying about the exile in the Old Testament, we realized that they didn't have a chance to gather. And we kind of understand that a little bit because of COVID, we weren't able to get together and gather. We tried virtual and now we're in this socially distanced thing with 50% of capacity. It's all kind of weird. So we kind of relate to a little bit of what the exiles went through. And so we are reimagining what it would be like to gather as God's people, according to the standard in his word. We also talked about rediscovering scripture and what is the scripture and what is it made of and what is it, what did God intend for it? And, and how have we maybe turned it into more of a textbook than the beautiful piece of literature and awesome story and message about God that it, that it was designed to be. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about rethinking preaching. So um, this is one I've been actually like waiting for. This is where the whole series started was on this message. And so I have a lot that I want to get out. I hope you have a pen and are ready to take a lot of notes. We're going to put all the notes on, online as well so you can go through them on your own. And uh, after this, this is the last one in this series. And so if you've been like, yeah, Pastor Mike, this is just not my cup of tea when it comes to messages, hang on, because we're going to start the book of Jonah, Lord willing, next Sunday and get back into uh, studying the Old Testament together. Uh, but when you realize that the exiles lost their ability to meet, that they could not gather, you kind of appreciate the value of what we have. They had no Sabbath services to attend. They lived as exiles, at least not at first. Eventually, they were able to go back into worship together, but at first they couldn't. They had no public meetings. And our pandemic has changed a lot of things on us. Um, when public meetings were banned in our region, like across our state, you couldn't have a public meeting. Uh, it meant that a lot of us scrambled to figure out how to use technology to somehow continue to function in some way as, as a church. Some churches attempted music and actually had full recordings of their music team. Um, some churches actually recorded their music in, in teams individually, each person with their own part, and then compiled them together. I thought it was really creative, um, so they could actually have music on a Sunday morning. Some churches recorded their messages and then just broadcast them on Sunday mornings, um, and that was, that was okay. Um, as we adjusted and tried to figure out what we were going to do as a church uh, we decided that the number one thing that was important for us to do was to gather around God's word. And so that's the one thing that we focused on. And we, we, like, we weren't going to try to do music. We we're trying to figure out everything else. Just, but if we could just focus on spending time together around God's word, that was going to be our primary focus. So David and I did a conversational style tag team series for like 12 weeks. And I understand that probably was not like the favorite of some people. That's totally cool. We enjoyed it a lot because when you're actually like preaching into a screen, it's really lonely. But I at least had David on the other end to, um, to either go, Mike, don't, don't say that, or, or to smile and to encourage me. So we had each other to have a conversation with. We're like, right now I can see your faces and so we can react to each other. Really hard to do that when you're looking at a screen. So we opted for a tag team where we're both preaching and then taking turns during, during throughout the message. Um, and we learned that 
through all of it, some churches actually even had drive-up services. You hear about any of those where they actually had FM transmitters and you could drive up in your car and tune in and you could sit in the car and you can honk the horn if you like what, what the pastor was saying. Kind of fun, right? So we learned through all of it that you can have a lot of variety when it comes to what you do on Sunday morning and that the pandemic kind of forced us to do different things. I think some of us are really excited to get back to somewhat of some normalcy. I don't think we want to do drive-up services our whole life. Right. And I definitely don't want to preach into a little camera on a screen the rest of my days. No offense, those of you that are tuned in up on that one. But it made me really think about what we actually do on Sunday mornings when we gather. And so for our last reflection on exile, I want to rethink preaching. Now, when I went to Bible college, I was taught how to preach. Literally, it was one of the classes that I took. In homiletics class, we learned how to take a passage and how to parse out the meaning, to make two or three, maybe five memorable points. The three was preferred because we all know three is the number of the Trinity and it's complete. So we try to make it three points, right? And then we would try to captivate our audience with illustrations and elaborate on God's word with authority and motivate people with application. See, I even did it there. I made it three points and even had a rhythm. You know, you had captivate, elaborate motivate. So if I, I guess if I was an exceptional preacher, I would have made them alliterate as well. So you did another eight it would, because they all would have started with the same letter. We learned the skill and the style of reading God's word and putting it all together in a way that we could share it. We were trained that preaching was the predominant method of teaching in the church and that it was our duty as pastors to preach in such a way that we can consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, as Hebrews 10.24 says. In other words, our preaching was designed to motivate people into action for God's kingdom. That's what Sunday mornings were for. I even brought a couple books with me just to show you um, what I'm talking about. These were recently given to me, um, not because somebody thought I needed to change my preaching style. They were extra books that they had. Um, so I'm sure I could do some changing my preaching style, too. This one's called uh, Principal Preaching, and this one is actually, the subtitle is How to Create and Deliver Purpose-Driven Sermons for Life Application. So you probably even know where this one probably originates from, or at least connects to, if you've heard the phrase purpose-driven. Um, and in this book, they talk about the, the goals of principal preaching, and it's the idea that, that all preaching should inspire people to application, that if you were going to, to learn how to have principle-style preaching, every point would be an action or a verb, which would require us to do something with it, and that this is probably the best and most effective form of preaching. That's what this book is going on to say. This other one is called Preaching for a Verdict, and it's uh, recovering the role of exhortation, it says. And, and I thought it was really interesting um, what they said uh, in their introduction. Um, this book is written out of the conviction that true preaching always calls for a verdict. There's their statement. In other words, it's not true preaching unless you call people to respond to it in some way. And I think that's often the common mindset that we have when it comes to preaching, isn't it? How many of you come to church and you expect that by the end of the message, there's going to be something that you're expected to do? Anybody? Come on, really? You know the pastor's calling you out on something, right? Matter of fact, you expect it to happen. My concern is that in an effort to make sure our listeners have action points and outlines to remember, that we can distort the true meaning of the scriptures. And even worse, 
By requiring application with each message, we can actually perpetuate the concept that God only accepts us when we're doing things for him. And that's a wrong concept. If you want to wrestle with that a little bit more, check out Mary and Martha and their engagement with Jesus. Take some notes. People might think that God is only interested in human doings and not in human beings. And that would be a mistake. While it can be beneficial and even necessary at times to have action points, it's not the only way to preach. Additionally, I found that more and more books promote that specific styles of preaching. Our modern day church has specific types of preaching that are acceptable. There's topical, there's expository, there's all sorts of different styles. And, and our churches are even polarized on this particular thing. Um, some have even gone so far as to say that a single style of preaching is the only biblical way to preach. And while there's nothing wrong with most of these methods, I, I like expository preaching. I like exegetical preaching. It can actually be very good. But it's not the only way to preach. Can I just throw that out there? There's no one way to preach. Um, the Apostle Paul, he didn't preach exegetically. He's going to throw that out there. Neither did Peter. And that's not the way Jesus taught. Jesus didn't start with an Old Testament passage from the Law or Prophets and just break it down verse by verse, word by word to his audience. You will not find that in the New Testament. Each of them tailored their message to the individuals or the churches that they were addressing. So claiming that there's only one biblical way to preach is unbiblical. Stew on that for a second. I believe it's possible that the modern church and that modern pastors have lost touch with the beauty of God's word and the wonder of the God who penned it. And I think it's very possible that we, in our preaching styles and in our, and in our expectations on Sunday morning, have relegated the word of God to an instruction manual. That we've made idols out of preaching styles. And that we've perpetuated a false concept of works-based acceptance by God. This morning, I want to strip away the modern expectations that we have of Sunday morning messages and the production that Sunday services have become. And look at what the Bible really teaches us about what our time together as a church could look like and probably should look like. So I want us to reclaim a biblical understanding of preaching. Now, in most churches, I'm called a preacher, right? You ever, you ever refer to a pastor as a preacher? Hey, preacher, what's going on? I don't know if I like that title. Honestly, I don't. I'm going to share with you why in just a minute. But that's what's expected on Sunday morning. The preacher's going to preach, right? Interesting word, preach. It really is. Um, it's, it's one of our own English concoctions, honestly. Um, I thought I'd look up what the word preach means. I think you'll find this rather interesting. So the great theologian Webster says this, that to preach is to deliver a sermon, which is another Bible word. So you're actually defining a, a Bible terminology with another Bible term. To deliver a sermon or to urge acceptance or abandonment of an idea or course of action specifically. To exhort in an officious or tiresome manner. I love that. I just love that. So I thought, well, okay, if he says that it's to deliver a sermon, maybe I should focus on what a sermon is and, and get rid of the tiresome part. A sermon is a religious discourse delivered in public, usually by a member of the clergy as part of a worship service, or a speech on conduct or duty. So what Webster's really saying 
is that to preach is to deliver a speech on religious conduct in a tiresome manner. I like it. This is why I don't want to be called a preacher. It's really not very flattering, is it? To deliver a speech on a religious conduct in a tiresome manner. And I think that probably defines a lot of preaching. It really does. It really does. But it doesn't define biblical preaching. It doesn't define what preaching really means. The, according to Webster, the word preach that we have in English actually comes from around the 13th century, the 1200s. And it comes from two Latin words. One means before and one means to announce. And you put them together and it's to announce, basically, to proclaim. That's what preach means. It's much closer to the actual usage of the word preach that we get in the Greek form in our New Testament. The word preach is found in the New Testament. Our Bibles means to proclaim. And the first time we're introduced to it is in the Gospels. So Matthew chapter 1. So if you're writing down things or you want to turn in your Bible, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3. Excuse me. Matthew 3, 1 through 3. Talks about this guy, John the Baptist. Now, John was a little bit bizarre, right? He had a weird diet. He wore weird clothes. He hung out down by the Jordan River. But it says this in Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he was preaching. Here's that word, proclaiming. Saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. So he was preaching, saying, repent. And the Greek word here is kiruso, which means it appears 74 times in the New Testament, and it means to announce or to proclaim, simply to speak. David did announcements this morning. He shared with you what was coming up. Literally, that was preaching. Weird, isn't it, when you start putting it that way? Luke chapter 3 and verse 3 says that, um, that excuse me, he went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That word proclaiming, preach, same word, Russo, to announce. John's message was a, to repent. He was the one coming before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was announcing a message of repentance and also the good news that the kingdom of God has come. So let me ask you this. How would you define the difference between proclaiming and persuading? Or is there a difference? How would you define the difference between proclaiming and persuading? Anybody want to jump on that one? Yeah, I think that's a great way. So to proclaim is just to state facts. To persuade is to try to change somebody's mind or their actions or, or some kind of behavior on their part. Most lectures and seminars and books that I've read on preaching are about persuading people. Um, take the two that I brought with me this morning. Um, they, they're good examples of the fact that they see preaching as the act of persuading. The Apostle Paul actually says the exact opposite when it comes to preaching that the goal of his preaching was never to persuade people, which I find interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, why don't you flip over there? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul's goal was actually not to be persuasive. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1, 
Paul says, hey, listen, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. I think preaching needs to be more about yielding to God's Spirit than learning human wisdom or devices. Preaching needs to be more about listening to God's Spirit than a well-crafted message. So maybe we have a problem with definition. Maybe we have a wrong understanding of what preaching really is in the Bible. So how does the Bible portray preaching? Well, we already learned that John proclaimed or preached or announced the need for repentance. After the arrest of John the Baptist and after his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus went out in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, and it says this, From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. His message was much the same as John's. It was to repent, turn back to God because the kingdom is near. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. 34 of 70, 35, excuse me, of 74 times that we find the word preach in the New Testament, it's in the Gospels. It happens a lot. About 50% of the times you find that word in the New Testament, it's in the Gospels. In Matthew, it's, it's preaching about the kingdom of God. In Mark, it's the gospel that's preached. In Luke, it's a baptism of repentance, the release of captives, the year of the Lord's favor, the good news, the forgiveness of sins. He has a lot more messages on preaching than the rest of them. All of these are kingdom language. So we find that in the gospels, when they use the word proclaiming, they're proclaiming the kingdom of God. They're relating things back to the garden, in the garden exile in Genesis chapter 3. They're taking us through the history of Israel and the Exodus. They're connecting us to the covenants with Abraham and Moses. And they're leading up to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and how he is the fulfillment of all the things that God had promised. And they're proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. In other words, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets has shown up in Jesus Christ. Though the word preach is used to describe or, uh, um, other announcements, the primary use in the New Testament seems to be in regarding to telling others about the good news of Jesus. Not only did John and Jesus preach, but the disciples also preached. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, and he sent them out to preach. There's a man in Mark chapter 5 who was freed from demon possession. And he wanted to go along with Jesus. And Jesus told him this in Mark 5.18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim, same word, preach, to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, they were all amazed. So he's preaching in a pagan place about what God has done for him and healing him from his demons. 
Modern churchdom has relegated preaching to an art form designated for the preachers. Not only have we misunderstood the, mini- the meaning of preaching, which is not to give a sermon in a tiresome manner, we've misunderstood who's called to preach. Did you realize that preaching is the responsibility of everybody in the church? Like, wait a minute, Pastor Mike, I am not getting up there on that stage. That's not what I'm talking about. What does preach mean? It means to do what? Come on, I've been talking about this for 10 minutes now. To proclaim. To proclaim what? The good news. The the last commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, we call it the Great Commission, was to go and make disciples of all nations, right? We claim this for all of the disciples of Jesus, not just for the 11 that were with him. Telling them about Jesus, proclaiming the good news of the forgiveness of sins, is preaching. And Mark's account makes it very clear. In Mark 16, 15, we read this. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now, if you read that as that's your function and my function, it might sound a little bit scary. And I think it sounds a little scary because we've taken church meanings and added them to words where it's taken on a whole new life. Let me put that in what it really means in the context of what the writer was saying. Go into all the world or go into your neighborhoods and tell others the good news of what God has done for you. Now, that sounds a little less scary than go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Because we take gospel to be, to be one thing, and we take preach to be one thing, and we think, okay, that means I have to be up behind a pulpit, I have to gather a crowd, and I have to just kind of preach. Like, no, it's literally go and proclaim to the people around you the good things. That's what gospel means, the good news of what God has done for you. It's that simple. And all of us are called to do that. Less scary. To preach means to proclaim. Gospel means good news. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Please, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Romans 10, 14 and 15. One of Paul's famous addresses. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There's a glorious joy in knowing that preaching is not just reserved for the paid professionals. It's a privilege of each and every one of us to take the good news of Jesus to the world around us. And we've relegated preaching to art forms and styles and, and modes and methods that require somebody to prepare and present in a certain way. And we call that preaching. And yet preaching is as simple as taking the good news of what Jesus has done and sharing it with the people around you. Like the blind man, like the deaf man, like the demon-possessed man. None of them had an education in Bibleology. But all of them were able to preach the good news. And we get the same privilege. But I want to also pause for just a second here, because I want to avoid establishing another false teaching or doctrine in what I'm saying. Very easy to do. 
Some might conclude, therefore, that preaching is only related to the gospel. That's not what we find in the New Testament. Remember, the word we, we use for preach is actually the Greek word proclaim or announce, and it's not really what you and I are used to today. And it's not only used regarding the gospel. Paul commended Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Preach the word. Now, the word here is not the same as the word gospel. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. And so you're like, okay, well, what's the word? Up until last week, you might be tempted to say it's the whole Bible, which it is for us today. But in Paul's day, if he said preach the word, the immediate context could be the word that Paul had passed on to Timothy, which is about the law and the prophets and the Messiah. It could also be about the law and the prophets in particular, because that was what was canonized at that time. It's the Bible that they had. That's the book, the books that they had accepted at that point. You might be thinking, yeah, but but isn't the word Jesus? Well, yes, but it's not capitalized here like it is in the Gospel of John chapter 1. It's John who referred to Jesus as the word when he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word with God, and the word was God. Paul doesn't refer to Jesus as the word. In the most direct context, it's the message that Paul passed on. In the bigger message, in the bigger context, it's the law and the prophets. So when he says to Timothy, preach the word, he's not just talking about the gospel, is he? Talking about more than just the gospel. Paul also used the word preach in a different way in Romans. Romans 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 21. You then who teach other, one another, do you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? Wait a minute. Those who preach, you must not steal. You must not steal is not the gospel. Right? Can we agree on that? You who preach, you who proclaim that we shouldn't steal, are you stealing? Proclaiming is the word preaching. Preaching is not, in and of itself, just about the gospel. It's about announcing something. 2 Peter 2.5 If God didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world to the ungodly. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Noah was a preacher? I don't remember hearing a single sermon from Noah. And he certainly wasn't talking about Jesus because Jesus hadn't shown up on the scene yet. I don't even remember him talking about the kingdom of God. Of course, he couldn't have talked about Israel because Abraham wasn't born yet. And I don't think that the angel in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, was necessarily talking about the gospel. When John writes, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Proclaiming, announcing with a loud voice. Same Greek word for preach. Now, the vast majority of times that we see the word proclaim or preach in the New Testament, it is connected to the message of the kingdom of God. The vast majority of the time, it's connected to the kingdom of God. It's connected to repentance, and it's connected to the Messiah. So for that reason alone, it's probably acceptable for us to connect preaching and the good news, that the good news should be proclaimed. What better thing could you proclaim? I mean, let's admit it. We'll proclaim a lot of things. We'll proclaim free ice cream day. 
right? We'll proclaim a, a good sale. We'll announce all sorts of stuff on Facebook. Some of it probably shouldn't even be announced. Throw that out there. Why wouldn't we proclaim the best news of all about what God has done for us, for all of mankind, so that others can participate in it? However, it's not healthy for us to define all preaching as gospel-centric or to say that only gospel-centric messages are true preaching. Not only is it not healthy, it's not biblical. What we can certainly agree on is that preaching is a public announcement, not a private matter. It belongs outside the walls of the church as much as it does inside the walls of the church building. And for the Christian, for the Christian church, it's to be focused on God's message, God's character, God's ministry of reconciliation, not on man's methods or cleverness. So yes, the church should be preaching. Though a biblical understanding of preaching may be to proclaim the good news, I think the modern church has understood preaching as sharing a good message from the pulpit. And that's not what it is. But what we really haven't addressed the question of this morning that I want us to look at next is, is preaching what a church should be doing every time it meets on Sunday? Is that what we're called to do every time we meet? I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I've already referenced this once. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 together. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul's writing to Timothy, who is an elder or a pastor in a church. He's actually a pastor in a church in northern Turkey area. He's in a place where you have a lot of non-Jewish people. Okay, which that's not that's not like a, a negative thing. It's just these people don't have a history with the God of Israel. You would have some Jews that have moved to that area because of the dispersions and because of the exile, but you have a lot that would not. And so Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Paul's charge to Timothy is not just preach. It's preach the word. It's correct. It's rebuke. It's encourage. It's teach. I want to read for you some quotes that kind of sound good at surface, but kind of concern me after that. One is from a very popular author and teacher, has his own commentary series, has his own sermons online, and, and pastors of church. And he said this, Preaching does not stop with understanding ancient languages, history, culture, and customs. Unless the centuries can be bridged with contemporary relevance in the message, then the preaching experience differs little from a classroom encounter. One must first process the text for original meaning and then 
print supplies the text for current application. One study falls short of the goal if this step is omitted slightly. On the surface, this sounds okay. However, the distinction here is that preaching is different from teaching, which it is if preaching is just proclaiming and teaching is helping someone learn or calling someone to action. But he says that preaching must require application. You have to principalize it. I had to, like, is that a real word? It really is. It just sounds like this missing a syllable. You have to figure out how to take the text and make a principle out of it so that people can apply it to their lives or else you've missed the point of preaching. Really? Where's the biblical understanding of what preaching really is in that statement? It doesn't exist. And are we okay with assuming that teaching does not apply things to the current context? Because that's what he's stating. Well, no, good teaching will help apply things to current context. Kind of scares me. It's saying that it's not a good sermon unless we found a way to take God's word and make it relevant to today's society and make it a principle that people can apply. And I think that when we do that, sometimes we twist God's word into saying what we want it to say. And we can lose sight of what God really wanted to say in the first place. Here's another quote that I think is interesting. It's, from, it's actually from the same book, but from a different author. The author is quoting somebody else in this one. There are five considerations that must be met in every successful sermon. So you know, this is going to be good, right? Okay, make sure you note these because this is important if you're ever going to share a sermon. There should be an appeal to the reason, to the conscience, to the imagination, to the emotions, and to the will. And for each of these, there is no method more serviceable than systematic exposition. In other words, going word by word, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. Can I suggest that the concept of successful sermons is part of the blight that has created productions out of instructions? This concept of successful sermons is a new concept in the modern church that for a sermon to be successful, it has to achieve certain goals in the way that it is presented or in the way that it is packaged. That's not what the Bible teaches. And there's some problems with that. I do not find those five things that that person mentioned in the Bible at all. As far as a requirement, So let me go back to Timothy, okay? I realize I kind of ranted there a little bit. These things have been building up for a while. You can ask David. He's been listening to me for some time now, so I appreciate you sticking with me during the rant. Let me go back to Timothy. Okay, take a deep breath. Before the passage in 2 Timothy, there's another letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. We refer to it as 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul tells Timothy this. Until I come, because he plans to visit, until I come, Give your attention to the public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Any of you have the NIV version of the Bible with you? If you have the NIV version, it doesn't actually say um, exhortation. It says preaching. By the way, that's the wrong translation in that spot. Preaching, we know, is to announce. The word you hear is to exhort or to encourage, um, or it's an entreaty. Not the same. Um, so... Until I come, give your attention to public reading, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, 
one of these books that I brought with me actually says that preaching is for Sunday mornings and teaching is for other times. In other words, they shouldn't be mixed. We preach on Sundays, we teach other times. I, I'm going to say that they probably are not looking at an actual biblical understanding of what preaching is and what teaching is. I think their intent can be good, but they're missing some points here. Um, I say that's a man-made tradition and not a mandate. And though it may not be wrong to choose such a course, it would be terribly wrong to mandate such a practice. Um, it was not uncommon for churches to gather together just to read the law and the prophets. We talked about that last week. It was done on the Sabbath, Acts chapter 13. 13, 35, 13 through 15, excuse me, Acts 13, 13 through 15. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem. They continued on their journey from Perga and reached the city in Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. The church would come together and they would read the law and the prophets. You didn't often have much expounding on it. Well, why would they do that? Because the importance is on hearing the word of God. The importance is on knowing the word of God. If proclaiming the kingdom or preaching was done in the synagogue by Jesus and reading the word, just having scripture reading, was done by the apostles and by the religious leaders in the book of Acts. Teaching should also be done in the synagogue and on the Sabbath. And as a matter of fact, exactly what Jesus did in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. He went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. So biblically, I can't say that preaching is for Sunday and teaching is for other days of the week, because Jesus taught on the Sabbath. I think we've drawn lines where they don't need to be because I think we've tried to pigeonhole preaching into one particular topic or style or category of teaching. And we've misunderstood that preaching and teaching should take place. We should be proclaiming as well as instructing. On Sunday mornings and every other day of the week. <laughs> Why do we compartmentalize? I don't know. I think we've missed out on so much of what God wants us to experience as a church body. Because of that, preaching is one part of a well-balanced church diet, but so is scripture reading and teaching and encouraging with others with songs and prayer. They're all components of a healthy church. And as we meet as a church family, our time like this should be about exploring God's word, the Bible, and about understanding the God who created us and his mission, understanding his heart and his mission and his provision for us to be his people. That means learning about the entire Bible, the entire Bible, not just the passages that preach well, right? Not just the ones we can draw the greatest application from. It means being faithful to God's word, which means having an understanding of what the Bible is really designed to be and to do. What we should be more concerned with than patterns and styles of teaching or preaching is faithful teaching and what the Apostle Paul referred to as sound doctrine. That passage we looked at in 2 Timothy 4. He said, the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. 
but will want messages that make them feel good or that tickle their ears, that make them happy to hear. And that we have a lot of that in our society today, don't we? Now, if you hear sermon and you hear doctrine, do they mean the same thing to you? No, because a, do- a sermon is that thing that's that tedious thing that we do that kind of bores people, right? Remember, we'll get onto that, right? Doctrine is a principle or a position. Um, and it's meant to establish a system of belief. Sermons were designed to call people to action, according to Webster. Doctrine is designed to establish a system of beliefs. Can I just say that it's hard to have the right actions if you don't have the right system of beliefs? And all we teach on, the general rule we preach on on Sunday mornings, is all the things we have to do. Not so much all the things we need to believe, the system of belief that we need to have. I would say most modern preaching is more geared toward the sermon definition of Webster and not the doctrine definition of Webster. Um, Now, the word doctrine that we see in the New Testament that Paul was talking about is most commonly translated as teaching. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 Whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, same word, doctrine, written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. Remember our timeline from last week? Paul would be referring to all that was written would be the what? All that was written in Paul's time was the law and the prophets. Now, we have the whole scripture, New Testament canon as well that we can refer to. But he says, listen, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, for our doctrine, for our system of belief. That we can have hope and endurance. Second Timothy, I'm sorry, first Timothy 517. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I like the fact that he throws them both together. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Paul refers to them as if they're two different things. Preaching is proclaiming the gospel. Teaching is instructing people with truth and helping them form a system of beliefs. And while it's not wrong to have teaching that makes a point, nor messages that call us to action, it might be helpful if we redefine action. Sometimes action is not so much something we have to do. Sometimes an application is not so much something, a behavior we have to change. Sometimes application is wrestling with who God really is. And who we are in light of that. Sometimes it's wrestling with the majesty and the glory of God. You can't read Psalm 139 and comprehend it all. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. He talks about how God knows everything about us from the time we were knit together in our mother's womb. He knows what we're thinking before we think it, what we say before we say it, and we can't hide from God's presence. And David's conclusion is, man, such knowledge is too high for me to grasp. I, cannot, I just can't take hold of it. Sometimes the best application is to have to wrestle with something. If you think everything needs to have an application, you're going to hate the way Jonah ends his, his book. Because his book ends with a question without a clear answer. Oh, you're going oh, to be so frustrated when we get to the end of it. Hope you stick around for that one because I want to see who's twitching. When we approach the scriptures in such a scripted way as what was taught to me, it comes with some very real concerns. 
that will mostly preach the passages with obvious action points, missing out on it over 60% of the Bible. That's a concern. We'll bend the text to make the application work for us or for what we want to achieve people, uh, how, how we want to steer people and get them to, to go a certain way. That will propagate a culture that believes that Scripture is all about them. Can I just tell you, Scripture is about God. It's his word. And while it definitely speaks to us, the hero of the book is him, not us. And we'll start seeing the Bible as a manual for life instead of revelation of God. Last week we talked about literary genres. And I want to kind of leave you with this concept as we wrap up here. And we said, hey, the Bible has poetry and it has narrative, historical narrative, and it has prose that that wants you to actually think and wrestle with things. There's application in some points. There's, there's meditation in other points. It's full of all, sites, all different types of literature, even some things that you can't quite get, like some of the parables about the kingdom where you're meant to just think about and process, figure out how it applies. If the Bible is a masterfully created literary piece with all different styles of literature in it, And each of those styles is meant for us to engage it in a different way. If the church is going to preach and teach the whole counsel of the word of God, wouldn't it be just a natural conclusion that the way that we teach and preach each of those types or each of those sections would be different? That it might look unique? I brought a third book. This one, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, it's called Word-Centered Church. And the first time I read through it, I didn't really like it very much. Um, but that's because I'm just pig-headed sometimes. And, uh, and so I, I try to go back. When I, when I really wrestle with a book, I try to go back and reread parts of it and make sure I wasn't just being you know, like blind to my own things. Because I think that we can be very blind Um, to other truths around us when we get stuck in our ways, which is why we're doing this series, this three-week series, so we can get very blind in certain things. And the author of this book says this, In my opinion, preaching the point of the text in a way that is faithful to to both content and purpose means being sensitive to literary genre and potentially adapting one's style. A plain three-point sermon might be appropriate for an epistle, but something is lost when the same style applies to a powerful narrative like Joseph's or Esther's or Jesus' resurrection. Why do children love to hear the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Because in a narrative, the setting, the tone, the interplay of the developing characters, and the surprise and delight of plot resolution give power to the text, even theological power. Faithfulness to that particular text, I believe, requires articulating the potential lesson of the story. But it also requires moving the hearer through the action of the story, step by step, so the hearer can experience a childlike wonder and awe at the power and faithfulness of God. In short, narrative might require something slightly different than epistle, just as poetry should be different than law, and wisdom needs to be different than apocalyptic. Yet in every genre, the preacher's goal is the same, laying the burden or point of the text upon the congregation. 
I love that statement because it reminds me that God, God didn't design his book in just one way. It's full of different styles of literature. It's meant to communicate in many different ways. And when we lock ourselves into a certain style of preaching or a certain way that we expect God's word to be presented on a Sunday morning, we can miss out on some of the wonder of what God has written in an attempt to try to make what we have written spectacular. Preaching must be focused on faithfulness to God and his word above all else. In my opinion, preaching and teaching ought to leave people with a clearer picture of God and his mission. And if there are lessons to learn and things to do along the way, great. We should do them. We should learn them. But the greatest focus should be on God and his activity. So what's my point in bringing all this up? Well, it was not to make a bunch of people mad at me, though I'm sure it's a distinct possibility. I'm beyond that. I want us to contemplate what we expect on Sundays. From what I've studied, the early church had no hang-ups that I can find regarding the proper method of preaching or style of teaching or order of service or service length. You could have shown up on a Sabbath day and you could have heard Paul teaching until midnight. You might have shown up and just heard the reading from the Law and the Prophets. You might have gotten a history lesson. Paul was really good at those. You could have been presented the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. Or you might have listened as the elders read a letter from the leaders of the head church telling you to stop being a jerk. If you think about what we turn into sermons, the epistles of Paul, they were Paul writing to the church saying, don't do this. You got it wrong. Fix it. And what would happen is those letters would go to the church and the church elders would stand up and they would just read them. They didn't break them down into three points and alliterate them. I have a letter from Paul, and here's what he wants you to know. And they would read them. That's what they were designed for. They were letters. But we've kind of lost some of that. We've turned them into textbooks and manuals. The point is that the expectation of preaching ought to be to engage the God of the Bible through the power of the Spirit and God's word shared together. The point is that the expectation of preaching ought to be to engage the God of the Bible through the power of the Spirit and God's word shared together. It's that simple. May that be our Sunday morning aim and our everyday commission, that we would be faithful to God and his word, that we would proclaim it, that we would teach it, that we would meditate on it, that we would share it, that we would tell stories about it, that it would be part of our lives, and that we would be okay embracing God's word in various ways and experiencing God in different genres, in different styles, in different literatures, even accepting the fact that different people share in a different way and learn to embrace the God of the Bible and the work that he's doing and not to become guilty of establishing systems or idols or methods that we have to follow to have successful sermons. Successful sermon helps us realize that God is amazing. And he's not limited to what we do. And we should be about in learning 
and growing together and experiencing God through his word in so many different ways. So as we close out this morning, just curious, and I have to give you an application, see? This is what I was taught. I started with an illustration. I've had my points. Now I'm going to come to the application because that's what we do in preaching. Have you set up certain mindsets about what preaching has to be to be acceptable? Have you expected certain things on a Sunday morning and been disappointed when it wasn't that way? Now, if it wasn't teaching God's word, you should be disappointed. I, I think I gave you about 28 scriptures, so hopefully we got a bunch of them in there, but it wasn't all from one passage. So you're like, oh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a sermon because we didn't just look at one passage. Have, have we embraced or believed certain things about what it means to be a faithful sermon as opposed to what God says? Have we adopted styles and preferences over just being immersed in God's word? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is not just an instruction book. It's not just to teach society how to live in a moral way, but it's a revelation of who you are and your amazing work with your creation. Father, we know that you created us for relationship with you and that we've messed that up. And through your word, we understand that you continued, continued to provide opportunities and ways for us to reclaim that relationship and that we can't do it on our own. So we thank you for sending Jesus to die for us, to bring us back into relationship. We pray that you would help us to continue to rediscover your word, to reimagine your church, and to redefine what it means to be in love with your word and to understand and to teach and to preach your word and to weep together as your family. We ask that in all of it, it would point us to a greater love for you. And out of that, you would draw us to a greater action in sharing that love with the world around us. And we ask the, this in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. If you would like to borrow any of these books, you're welcome to. Um, if you want to give me, read through them and then tell me what you love about them and what you don't, that's always cool. I love to hear other people's uh, perspectives on it. So and I want to thank you for sticking with us through the Exile series. David, you have a question or a statement. Oh, um, so yeah, we stopped recording. I get in too much trouble. So, um, yeah, so.